Hi everyone, this is Jason and welcome to the Bold Moves Only podcast. So by the time you're listening to this, the event will have started, but we are hosting a free virtual film screening in collaboration with Vulcan Productions. From August 12th to August 19th, we are screening Ghost Fleet, a film following a small group of activists who risk their lives on remote Indonesian islands to find justice and freedom for the enslaved fishermen who feed the world's immense appetite for seafood. I definitely recommend you sign up and watch this film. It will change your life. I can't even remember the last time I bought fish or ate fish without thinking about this film. And for this episode, I interviewed the director of this film, Shannon Service, who is an award-winning journalist who has been researching this topic for years and first broke the story of trafficked fishermen in 2012 on NPR's Morning Edition. The thing I really like about this film is it talks about how Overfishing is connected to not only the destruction of our environment, but also a cause for human rights abuses. And we do go into that a bit, so let's just get into it. Hi, Shannon. Uh, Thanks so much for joining the Bold Moves Only podcast. Uh, It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I want to start by asking you about how you first got into the subject of human trafficking in the fishing industry. Sure. I uh, was going to Berkeley. I got a master's in journalism um, at Cal, and I was graduating with a friend of mine named Becky, and we really enjoyed working together um, while we were studying, and we wanted to do a story together. Um, And she had spent years in Myanmar, also known as Burma, um, before going to Berkeley and, and she had heard, um, about men and boys disappearing from villages and disappearing from the city and not coming back. And there wasn't a lot of information about what was happening and not a lot of reliable media or studies on it, but there was a a rumor, um, that they were disappearing onto the Thai fishing fleet. So, um, she'd done a bit of research and she found, a a report from the International Organization on Migration uh, that confirmed that this in fact was happening. And so we reached out to the author of the report and found out um, that the scale was actually way beyond what what we had thought. It was actually um, in the tens, probably hundreds of thousands of men and boys throughout Southeast Asia from Cambodia, Thailand, uh, Laos, and Myanmar um, were all getting trafficked onto these Thai boats and that the fish was coming to the West. It's coming to the EU, to, to the UK, to Canada, to the US. Um, so we reached out to National Public Radio uh, and asked if they'd be interested in a story and, and they said that they would. So we spent six months um, throughout Southeast Asia investigating how it is that uh, this many men and boys can, can be lured out of um, their hometowns and home countries and disappear onto a fishing fleet, one of the biggest fishing fleets in the world, and nobody was really paying attention or documenting it. Um, And so we spent six months on that story. We ended up uh, doing a radio documentary about 15 minutes long for a morning edition on NPR in 2012, breaking the story about slavery at sea. And in the process, you know, I realized this is, this is not just a 
tremendously important story, but it's a, um, it, every guy I interviewed, uh, every, every man that we sat down with could have a Hollywood film written just about him. Just his journey alone was an absolute, um, incredible jaw dropping journey, uh, that, that, I knew right away could hold up a film. So we started um, working on the documentary as soon as we got back. And how important was it for you to be able to make a film as a vessel for this information? Do you think that film is the best way to really open people's eyes to something, especially something that has been ignored and disregarded? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I think that there's, uh, I'm a radio reporter as well, and um, I think there's a, a lot of incredibly important work that's done by journalists. Uh, and that's why I practice journalism. Uh, and I think that, especially in terms of getting it out to a lot of people and making an impact on policy and, and really moving the needle, um, it reporting was, was, was definitely the first wave, you know, our reporting followed by the New York Times and, um, and the AP, uh, the Guardian, you know, a, a number of big publications came out with with really important reporting that uh, influenced not just our own governments, but ultimately put a lot of pressure on Thailand. And so that's crucial, absolutely critical. Um, but what's missing in a lot of those stories is the ability to really reach people's um, hearts and their humanity. And I think that that takes a different kind of storytelling and one that asks people to um, sit and and open themselves and, and meet, you know, Patma and Tunlin and the incredible heroes who are there in the underbelly of fish, um, you know, risking their lives and, uh, and doing this really incredibly heroic work. And it's really only through, in my opinion, through that kind of experience that we can actually shift people on a on a deeper level, because otherwise, you know, the the wonderful thing about reporting is you put it in, on the national and international um, landscape and, uh, and you can move stuff, you know, you can actually move policy. Um, but it's a lot harder to move people when it's in the midst of a, um, uh, you know, either their, their commute and they're listening to 17 other stories or um, they're reading the news and kind of like passively consuming it while they're also working. Um, it it can, can kind of get lost in the shuffle, but I think a documentary or a film ha really has the capacity to move people in a, in a different way. And how were you able to follow the story so closely and safely? Um, you know, I credit our heroine Patma um, a lot for that. It took us, we, t we took a while as a team, as a film team, um, to choose who we were going to sort of follow into this world. Becky and I had done, you know, obviously a lot of reporting and met a lot of people. But when I, you know, sat down with uh, Jeffrey Waldron, my co-director, and, and Greg Quedar, who was originally a producer, um, we knew that finding the right main character was crucial, not just because um, it always is, but because, you know, this, this subject is, is quite dark and, and heavy. And we wanted to find someone who could lift us out of the shadows and out of the darkness and, and show us, um, you know, all of the good that humans are capable of while we're also sort of um, uncovering the bad. And we also needed somebody who um, was going to be 
careful, you know, with, with her own team and with her own life um, and not, you know, reckless. Um, so I, I spent a lot of time both with Patma and also with security personnel uh, who specialize in film teams and documentary and making sure that everybody's safe. Uh, we also spent a lot of time, this is, you know, going to sound a little boring and bureaucratic, but uh, we got all the proper permissions and we also uh, worked with the Oceans Minister of Indonesia, this remarkable woman. Well, she was at the time um, the Oceans Minister. She's a remarkable, remarkable woman named uh, Susi Pujastuti, and she uh, was absolutely outraged that these boats, these Thai boats, uh, would enslave and kidnap men and boys and then come steal Indonesian fish. And so the men were jumping ship uh, off of these Thai boats onto uh, Indonesian islands. And when she found this out, she was absolutely outraged that there was slavery in the water. And so um, she was quite helpful and, and gave us um, several letters that essentially acted as protection. So when we went to these locations and as Patima searched for these boys to reunite them with their families, we had the blessing of sort of the top officer when I came to the oceans, which was also incredibly helpful. I mean, it's, it's, it's by nature a pretty dodgy terrain, no matter what we do, but um, the combination of having a team, her team, Patima's team, that's quite experienced in the region and um, does try to proceed with all due caution and taking all of the security precautions we could, I think kept us as safe as possible in a pretty um, unpredictable terrain. Are they are they continuing to work together to protect Patima and her team? Um, well, at the moment, Patima is actually not doing uh, ocean rescues. She's focused on uh, creating a rehabilitation center. So she's built a fisherman center outside of Bangkok that is a place for when the men and boys do come back, uh, they're able to access mental health services. They're able to train in other jobs, other professions, because often, you know, if you're kidnapped when you're 14 or 13 or 10 uh, and you fish for 10 years, uh, that's really all you know how to do. So often the men and the boys will come back, but then they'll go back into the fishing fleet because that's, the, that's how they can make a living. So she's created a center that was built by the men and the boys themselves. They learned construction, they've installed the solar themselves, and now they're growing their own food. Um, so she's really focused at the moment on what happens when these guys return, uh, which is actually really incredible because um, it, it's the only thing like it in the world that's focused on men return, you know, coming out of uh, slavery at sea. So she's not actually out currently, but she and uh, Susie Puji's studio when, when Susie was the oceans minister worked quite closely together. I mean, part of why Patam has been able to rescue thousands of men uh, was because of that close relationship. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible. So what, what are some common ways that people end up being trafficked to these fishing boats? The most common way is through a really informal network of traffickers. So it's not really, there, there isn't, as, to the best of my knowledge, there isn't sort of a, a top-down organized trafficking effort where there's like a kingpin and he or she kind of organizes the whole thing. Instead, it's kind of supply and demand. You know, there's a lot of demand for fishermen in the sector uh, in Thailand and uh 
there's a lot of unemployment and um, and poverty in surrounding countries and inside Thailand as well. So what happens is there'll be a, a broker in a village. Um, often this person isn't necessarily like nefarious or evil. That's kind of their job to help people in the village find work outside the village. And so they'll know other brokers outside the village who can get boys and men work. But it's kind of luck of the draw because what happens is a, a, a guy will go with that broker and then get passed on to another broker, get passed on to another broker. And if they decide to take work in Thailand where they'll make a lot more in a short, in a short period of time, um, they're passed to uh, a border who, a, a broker who, who, sorry, a broker who puts them across the border. And at that point they're totally helpless. So they don't speak the language. They don't have currency. They don't have a passport. They, you know, often don't have a cell phone. And so either that broker, if it's a, you know, good broker will get them a job on a farm or in a factory and fulfill the promise that was made to the to him when he began the journey. Uh, but once he crosses the border and is completely helpless, he could very easily end up on a fishing boat um, and set out to sea. So that is far and away the most common uh, method. But sometimes, especially in Thailand, uh, in certain port cities, a guy will walk into a bar or more often a brothel and um, he'll have a drink and he'll just wake up on board the boat. So they'll drug him and he'll wake up on a boat, something we used to call Shanghai. So that's another another way that, that men and boys end up on board. And then once they are on board, what is it like for them? Oh my gosh, it's, abs- it's, it's beyond imagining. It's, um, uh, you know, you'll have often 10 men and boys from different countries speaking different languages on a boat the size of an 18 wheeler living working growing stronger every day um but a lot of them don't want to be there and so it takes a tremendous amount of force and violence uh psychological force as well to keep them from mutiny or to keep them from fighting back so you have you know some really sadistic captains some are a little bit less so um but you'll usually have somebody, the Taekong, who is kind of like the the person who's in charge of the slave crew and who uses all kinds of violence from physical, you know, beatings and throwing hot water to um, to psychological violence, you know, pitting the men against each other uh, to keep the crew in line. And they'll be out there for 10 years, 12 years without even seeing land. So it's psychologically incredibly intense. And several guys that I, that, you know, that I've, I know of um, went mad. And so, you know, that, that's, that's not completely uncommon. Um, and there's a number of men who commit suicide. So they just, they can't really take the pressure. It's, it's a lot. And many of these men never had seen the ocean before they were sold on board. So it's it's an absolute shift. They're away from their friends, they're away from their family. A lot of men will um, try not to sleep because if they sleep, they'll dream. And if they dream, they'll dream of their family. And then they wake up on board and realize how completely trapped they are. So it's, a, it's an absolutely unfathomable reality uh, for these men and boys. And at the same time, you know, they also are able to keep each other alive and keep each other sane. And there's all of these stories of small acts of kindness or big acts of bravery, 
where the men have actually been able to save each other's lives. So it's an incredibly intense uh, world that's also punctuated by just long periods of, of boredom. You know, they're, they're sitting on a boat and they're, they're seeing nothing but sky and nothing but ocean and they do nothing but fish. Um, so it's a, it's a very, very different world than the one we're accustomed to. And as seen in your film, this could be upwards of 20 years. Yeah, that's, that was shocking actually for, for me, even as somebody who'd been really looking into it for a while, um, the longest I'd heard of before we embarked on our journey for the film was 18 years. But when we were out there, Patma um, found uh, a guy named, Ka <clears throat> named Kasim who had been away for 24 years. So this has been going on for a very, very long time. And the men, the way it works is that once the fishing boats are out at sea, there's a system of mother ships, mother boats that shuttle the supplies and sometimes the men out to the fishing boats and then bring the fish back in a refrigerated vessel. And that's, you know, that makes sense economically for fishing boats because uh, as the sea is emptying out of fish, the fishing boats are going further and further out to try to chase what fish are left, particularly tuna and sort of high value species. And so once they're thousands and thousands of miles away from Thailand, it doesn't make sense in terms of fuel and wear and tear on the boat to go all the way back to Thailand, drop off their catch, and then bring an empty boat all the way back out and keep catching tuna. It makes more sense to have these, these motherships. But the problem is that the motherships, in effect, cover the tracks of these boats because it's very hard for the international community and for authorities to know where they're fishing, who's on board, how many men got on board, how many men got off, because the fishing boats themselves are not coming back to port nearly as often as really they should in order to make sure that this kind of stuff doesn't happen. So um, they can, you know, with a, with a good mothership system, uh, there's no end really to how long they can be at sea. The only limiting factor is how long the boat um, can last without needing repair. And you, you just mentioned it a bit, but can you talk more about how overfishing not only destroys the environment, but how it is also linked to the rise in seafood slavery? Absolutely. Um, so overfishing is still... Uh, the biggest threat to our oceans, even beyond the climate crisis and temperature rise and plastics, um, currently over rampant overfishing, whether it's legal overfishing or illegal overfishing, um, is absolutely decimating oceanic ecosystems around the world. And what happened in Thailand is that this giant fishing fleet, the Thai fishing fleet, uh, emptied out the Gulf of Thailand and made it one of the most barren spots in the entire ocean. So suddenly boats that used to be away for maybe a couple of weeks and come back full of high value species um, found themselves chasing fish all around the world, going as far away as Indonesia um, and even Africa to try to find fish. And so that gave rise to slavery because as these boats went further and further out looking for fish, it meant that um, fishing that used to be a really, you know, pretty, pretty lucrative job for uh, middle-class Thai families, it meant that fishermen weren't able to come home, see their families, raise their kids. Uh, and they, instead they were at sea for months and at times years. 
And so a lot of fishermen just left the sector, started doing something else, uh, leaving the fishing fleet short tens of thousands of men per year. So instead of changing the conditions, offering more pay, making it safer, getting men home, the many in the fishing fleet, not everyone, but you know, many started buying men off of human traffickers as a solution. So it overfishing really gave rise to slavery in, in Thailand, and it also gives rise to labor abuses on fishing boats uh, around the world. And unfortunately, the cycle doesn't even stop there. So for example, Tun Lin, who uh, himself was enslaved for over a decade and is Patima's right-hand man. He goes in with her and helps find other men who are enslaved and bring them home. Um, he was kidnapped. He's Burmese. He was kidnapped when he was 14 and taken to Somalia. And Somalia at the time was in a complete freefall. Um, there was really no government to speak of. And so boats from around the world were coming to Somalia that has pretty rich fishing grounds. They knew that the Navy... The, the Marine police, there was nobody to stop them. So boats from around the world came and just basically stole their fish, including the boat that Tun Lin was on. So Tun Lin was sold onto a Thai fishing boat and taken from Thailand all the way to Somalia in order to steal Somali fish. Um, so fishermen from Somalia would come out and open fire on his boat and on the other boats uh, to try to protect their fishing grounds. And a number of international experts um, have since said that uh, the Somali pirates that started taking uh, tankers started out as fishermen who were just trying to protect their grounds. So you start seeing overfishing lead to slavery, which leads to you know the ability to go even further with an enslaved crew and steal fish even further away, which leads to um, piracy. You know, so you you have. A, Around overfishing, you have a lot of international security, food security, uh, and stability issues that we don't often link to overfishing, but it's it's all very connected. And you mentioned Somalia. I read that um, there have been reported cases of human trafficking on fishing boats and on upwards of something like 45, 46 countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, you know, there, there, it, there is um, a real problem with labor on fishing boats, just in general, it's extremely pervasive. And by labor, I, I mean, in the most extreme cases, slavery, forced labor, but also just really dangerous conditions, extremely low pay, you know, poverty, poverty wages throughout the world. And part of that is because it's so hard to police these boats. We need to be policing them in ports. We need to be keeping a stricter eye on them. But um, it's hard once they get out to sea. It's kind of a free-for-all out there. So, uh, yes, there are there, slavery is not just limited to Thailand. Um, there have certainly been cases in the UK. There was a case that was settled out of court off the coast of California. Um, there's cases in, you know, South Korean boats and Taiwanese boats. And um, it's, it, it is, it is a major problem. The, the, difference with Thailand has been that Thailand has been participating in, you know, has been um, employing slavery for at least 25 years. Um, And the scale of it is absolutely horrendous compared to um, other countries where you have isolated incidents or you do have, you know, scores of incidents. 
uh, Thailand, you know, it, it's no under, um, it's no exaggeration to say that, uh, that, that it's very easily in the hundreds of thousands of cases. So it's the pattern and practice of slavery in Thailand that, uh, that made them our target for, for our film. Um, and, and the other thing to note too is just that when you have a fishing fleet that's as big as Thailand's, that's employing slavery on just a routine basis or has been, you know, on a routine basis, uh, it warps the entire fishing landscape. So for example, I talked to, as a oceans reporter, I talked to the um, fisheries minister of the Philippines and I was asking him about some pretty horrendous conditions I saw on board some Filipino vessels. And he said, well, yes, you know, I'm sure we have a long way to go in terms of safety and, and pay, uh, but at least we're not Thailand. And so Thailand has sort of become this hole in the bucket, this excuse that um, a lot of companies and countries have to themselves employ really horrendous labor and environmental conditions. So we really need to clean up the whole thing, to be honest. And the Thai government has taken action after being forced to confront the issue um, of human trafficking in the fishing industry when accusations of trafficking went global. But have they actually been effective in making change in the industry? Because they claim to have been very successful. And yet, from what I have read and seen from your movie, for example, that does not seem to be the case. Yeah, you know, I think um, it, it, the answer is yes and no. So um, they went from zero, and I mean absolute zero, um, to doing quite a bit. But I think the question is, is what they're doing truly effective? So, for example, um, they are putting a lot of boots on boats. They are in port on boats going on board and searching for uh, labor violations and for slavery. Part of the problem is that often they just ask the captain if there are slaves on board, and then if the captain says no, then they leave. Um, are there more boots on boats? Yes. Is that tremendously effective? Maybe not. Um, so, you know, that is uh, a marked improvement. At least there's sort of a police presence, at least uh, slavery and forced labor is on the radar. Uh, but if you look at the number of prosecutions of captains and of owners, it's still abysmal, it's extremely low. If you look at the um, number of times that men have been able to, who were formerly enslaved, get their full salary back, again, abysmal, tremendously low. One thing that Thailand is doing that I think is, is helpful is they're making it easier for, for men to lawfully work, for uh, migrants to lawfully work on Thai boats. So they are make, it was tremendously hard before and now they're making it easier to actually get a proper seaman's book and to be employed lawfully and gainfully. Um, they, are they are making efforts to try to ensure that people are paid. That stuff, I think, is really important and, and, and does come after international pressure from governments and the media and activists uh, and labor unions. So th that's great. Th those are steps in the right direction. But until we actually see a crackdown, a real crackdown on the owners and the captains and the vessels that are still engaged in slavery, it's going to be hard to say that they're you know, taking a giant bite out of the apple. Yeah, I mean, I've even seen a video where a slave broker said that he 
saw his relationship with some police as a business partnership. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, when Becky and I were reporting on the story originally, uh, we went into the police station at Samut Sakon, which is the biggest port in Thailand where this is happening, and they were famous for, this is a little while ago, I, I don't know that this is still happening, but when we were reporting in 2011, um, I'm sorry, in 2012, um, they were famous for going onto these boats, busting men on immigration charges. So they'd go onto the boats and they'd say, okay, you're, you're working illegally on a boat, so we're going to bring you to jail. And then they'd sell the men out of jail to other captains. Um, straight out of lockup. So they were very, very engaged. And the police and military are actually engaged all along the trafficking route. The only way that you can smuggle tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of men and boys across international borders is by paying off the border guards. So, you know, they're employed there, they're often pulled over by police along trafficking routes who are just paid off. Sometimes the police will actually call the families of the men um, and get bribes directly from the families. So it's, it's absolutely corrupt every single step of the way. There's a whole bunch of people, authorities being paid off. The only people who aren't paid, I mean, the traffickers are paid, the police are paid, the people making the fake documents are paid. Everybody's paid except the men. Right. Okay. Well, as a consumer, what can we do better to buy fish that was not caught or processed using the labor of trafficked human beings? I think a good place to start is to just ask the question. And I know that's a little bit uncomfortable, but we have become quite accustomed. I mean, certainly um, those of us who have the luxury of, of being able to ask and, and afford organic products, for example, will often say like, is this organic? Do you know if there's pesticides? Or, um, you know, do you know if this beef is grass fed? Or we, we those of us who, um, again, have, you know, have, have the luxury of being a little bit more particular about where our food comes from, have a whole host of questions that we're used to asking, but we don't really ask anything about fish often. I mean, fish sort of just shows up. So, you know, where was it caught? Do you know anything about how it was caught? Those are, those are great questions to just start asking. And even if the person you're asking, whether it's your server uh, at a restaurant or uh, the fish buyer at the, the supermarket, even if they don't know, just asking the question and having that be a question that's, that's asked more and more is really helpful. To the extent that we're able to, um, you know, buying fish that is local and seasonal and um, uh, ethically caught by environmental standards will help ensure that that you're not, it lessens the chances tremendously that you're uh, buying fish that is, that was caught using forced or slave labor for the simple reason that if there's a, a an environmental, um, like a, a, a third party environmental group that's um, monitoring that fishery and that's monitoring that boat, they're under extra scrutiny. Um, and even if that environmental group is not looking specifically for labor violations, which more are, by the way, um, but even if they're not specifically trained to do that, just the fact that this boat is allowing itself to be under extra scrutiny is better indication that it's probably better caught. So local, seasonal, ideally, you know, 
and it's it's always a very personal thing to start telling people what to eat and not eat and i you know i i I, i'm not in that business but what i what i do for myself what i've done uh after being exposed to this and aware of it is i've chosen to try to eat less fish but better fish um so because i do live in california i'm able to ensure that um my fish is coming from California fishermen and fisherwomen that uh, I, I know are, um, are practicing good labor and environmental standards. And so if that means I can't afford more fish, then that's what it means. But, uh, but the fish I do buy is um, fish I feel good about. Doesn't a lot of the responsibility also fall on the retailers that bring the food to our plate? Yes. Yes, and that's why uh, our I, I worked with Vulcan Productions on this film, and um, Vulcan has has done a tremendous job of creating an impact campaign that focuses very specifically on retailers. So Patma and Tunlin, uh, but most notably Patma, has spoken at every major seafood conference in the last year, uh, and is and we as a team have been working very hard with retailers behind the scenes to try to hook them up with resources so that they're able to pressure their suppliers to, uh, to clean up their supply chain. So again, you know, the, the thing that, that's missing for uh, a lot of the bigger retailers um, is a signal from the market that people want this. And so it's sort of like this little self-fulfilling prophecy at the moment where the retailers who are resistant will say, well, nobody's asking about slave caught fish. And because nobody's asking about slave caught fish, they're not pressuring their suppliers to offer fish with really good labor standards. But if the public doesn't know that there's an option for fish with really good labor standards, they're not asking about slave caught fish. So it's sort of like this really weird um, kind of loop that we're stuck in. And so what's extremely helpful again is is if if you're in a you know major supermarket or wherever it is that you buy fish and you start asking how the fish was caught and if they know anything about the labor standards, it starts to it begins to send that signal that, that yes, people do care. Yes, they probably are willing to pay a little bit more to make sure that, um, that the fish that they are consuming was not caught with child slaver or forced labor. And are there any good resources to help out with that? I know that I was actually introduced to this application when Ghost Fleet was touring and when I saw it in San Francisco. Um, the, the application that the Monterey Bay Aquarium has made about finding out if the fish that you are buying is sustainable or not? Yeah, I, you know, I'm going to be honest and say I actually haven't checked in on, on that recently. Um, I know that Monterey Bay Aquarium and MSC and several other groups, I think Wild Aid, um, were making very good headway as of a couple of months ago. Um, and, but I honestly don't, know and I should brush up and, and figure out what the best resource is now, but um, I don't want to steer you in the wrong direction. Okay. Well, last question that I like to ask everybody is, what would you say to someone who really wants to make a difference and have a positive impact, but does not know where to start? That's a good question. I think in general, it's always best to begin with what one's natural curiosity and passion is. You know, I'm an oceans person. I love oceans. I live on a houseboat. I'm a surfer. I'm a diver. I'm a sailor. I I love the ocean. Um, And 
when I started down this journey, uh, which now has been a nine year long, going on 10 year long journey, um, that was my motivation. I love the oceans um, and I like being on the oceans. I like everything connected to them. Um, I'm deeply concerned about overfishing. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's really that passion and that connection to the ocean uh, as well as, of course, to these incredible heroes who I was able to, to meet through this process. Um, it's, it's that relationship, my relationship with Patima, my relationship with Tun Lin, my relationship with the sea that has made this journey possible because it's hard. And there's plenty of times when I could have very easily given up um, and it probably would have been wise. <laughs> but, um, but because there's this fire in my belly for the health of the ocean for future generations, you know, that really kept me going. So I think often we think of um, doing good as something outside ourselves, but I actually think that people who are able to really be in it for the longest haul are doing it for the most intimate and personal reasons. It's, it's, it's because they love something. So figuring out what that is and, um, and just moving in that direction is, in my opinion, the best way to go. Absolutely. Well, thank you for your time and being a guest on the Bold Moves Only podcast. Absolutely, Jason. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. It's time we really start taking a hard look at what's on our plate. So we at Bold Moves Only are creating a call to action that brings people together to make a commitment to understand where our food and other products we consume are coming from. Challenge yourself and others to think critically about the food and products we buy. Ask yourself, where does this product come from? Are there negative environmental implications from the sourcing? Is this a scarce resource? What labor is employed and are there ethical concerns? So we challenge you and ourselves to eliminate the ingredients and products you and we consume regularly that reflect any poor labor or environmental practices and find more suitable replacements. Through the month of August, we are highlighting the importance of transparency, promoting sustainability, and including equity in our food system. So we would love for you to share a pledge to hashtag Be Bold, Buy Better. Tag us at official bold moves only. Share the steps that you're going to take to be bold, buy better. We're going to do the same, and we will continue to share information, digital content, and resources that can help us all achieve our individual and collective goals. Also, make sure you register for the film or email me at jason at boldmovesonly.com for the link. Thanks again to Shannon for taking the time to speak to me and let's be bold and buy better.